Welcome to the 173rd podcast and the 143rd as a city on a hill church. Pastor Mike takes a critical step away from Isaiah for this and the next message. In California and in other states, government has taken it upon itself to forbid churches to meet inside, although our Constitution and the Word of God says they do not have that power. Pastor Mark explores this issue and our response to it today. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. And thankful that you are all here tonight. And for those of you watching online, we're glad that you're watching uh, also. Maybe there's law enforcement watching online to verify and document the crime of us actually meeting in person here. And that's okay too. Um, so I mentioned earlier, we, we are fully aware of the potential consequences of us meeting in person uh, when the governor has ordered that no worship is allowed to take place in California inside of any buildings, specifically churches. Um, and we will be addressing that here in just a minute. I know your bulletin online said that we were going to be in Isaiah chapter 5, and I was trying to find a way, actually. Pastors could be pretty creative. <laughs> trying to find a, a way to use uh, Isaiah chapter 5 as a springboard into this sermon tonight, but it just wasn't going to happen. So um, I felt it, I felt strongly last night the Lord uh, gave me more than what I'm going to share with you tonight. I was just talking to Pastor Bob about it, and I think I'll probably do part two on Sunday morning because um, this is pretty serious. This is pretty serious that the government is shutting down the churches in America. And we, we need to address this. We need to address it humbly. We need to address it with sensitivity. We're not trying to offend anyone. We're not trying to step on anyone's toes. Uh, we're not trying to uh, uh, tell any other churches that they ought to be meeting. But we don't feel that it's the government's place to tell us that we're not permitted to meet. It's a big thing. This is, this is monumental. This is how countries lose their freedoms historically. It's piece by piece. It's like boiling the frog. You know, if you, they say if you, I've never tried it, but if you take a frog, you put it in cold water and you turn on the fire and you just kind of slowly warm up the frog, it gets real comfy and, and then you could boil the frog and it doesn't jump out, apparently. Uh, I don't know who tested that theory, but it's used all the time as a theory of how you could boil a frog. If you took the frog and threw it into boiling water, it would hop right out, right? So they, they, they're they turning up the heat on us little by little by little and seeing if they're going to get any pushback from the churches. And so far, I think uh, the majority of the churches in trying to be good citizens and trying to obey the laws of the land and the laws of the government um, are going along with the orders of the governor, trying to be good citizens, trying to be those who are above reproach and so forth. But at some point, we have to stop and we have to say, okay, enough is enough, and it's time for the church to stand up and, and, to, and to take a stand. And if we're not willing to take a stand now, what makes you think that we'd be willing to take a stand later if a Marxist government or a communist government takes over our country, which is a very real possibility... This is how this happens. It's happened all over the world. For many decades, you could look at Cuba, you could look at Russia, 
Stalin. You could look at Mao in China. You could look at Lenin before Stalin in Russia. You could read the writings of Karl Marx. What's happening in our country uh, has happened many times before, and it's a takeover without having to fire a bullet. It's a takeover of the government by a group that uh, wants total power and that hates the church. It's satanic. Communism, Marxism, this is what Hitler did as well, as you know, the fascists. It all finds its roots in the writings of Karl Marx uh, in the early 1900s. And so if we're not willing to meet publicly now in defiance of the governors or in a safe place, everybody is perfectly safe here. You're just as safe here as anywhere else that's open out there for you to walk into a building uh, and come in and, and sit down for a little while. You have ample space, high ceilings. We have fans blowing and air circulating that's filtering the air and the, the chairs are, are, are set six feet apart. This is not an unsafe meeting. We don't have a hundred people here. And so um, when the governor uh, made the order that churches were not allowed to sing, that was his order a week ago Monday, no singing in churches. But the protesters who are burning down entire neighborhoods, burning down police stations and throwing Molotov cocktails at police cars, they could chant, scream, bloody murder, cuss and burn and pillage and beat people up. And the government says that's their constitutional right. We can't stop them because they have the right to protest according to the Constitution. So it is a double standard. And if the church does not stand up now, why do you think you're going to have the courage to stand up later if a Marxist government says, deny Christ, or we're going to line you up against the wall and we're going to shoot you dead? Think about it for a minute. They don't just come out and start shooting people. They take over the government. They change the laws. Then they enforce the laws. This is how dictators come to power too. Look at Idi Amin uh, in Uganda. Uh, the same thing. It starts out slowly, whether it's a Muslim dictator like Idi Amin was in Uganda who went after the church, persecuted the church, killed the pastors, burned the churches down. I have a good friend whose dad was martyred uh, by the Abolte re regime who came in after Idi Amin, who was tortured because he was a pastor. His church was burned down in Uganda in the 1970s, late 1970s, by a Muslim dictator in a British colony that was a Christian nation in East Africa. You think, well, how does it happen? It happens just like this, what we're seeing happen in our country right now. Slowly turning up the heat to boil the frog. And so I feel that it is necessary for us to take a stand uh, our pastor, our senior pastor, Pastor Bob Grenier, this is, this is his call, and I'm supporting his call. Uh, he's the senior pastor here, and he's, he's uh, said, we're not going to shut the doors again of our church. We're not shutting our doors again. It's just that simple. No matter what happens, this church doors are going to stay open here at Calvary Chapel of Visalia. Um, and so we need to have an intelligent, and we need to have a biblical foundation and framework for why we are doing this. And it's very, very important that we understand that this is actually um, part of being a Christian is being willing to suffer for our faith. Something we haven't experienced here in America uh, up until now, really. Uh, but but if again, if we don't stand up now for our rights, uh, come November, we could we could lose our rights. If 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 there is a government in place. In November, and the government controls the White House, the Senate, 
and the House of Representatives. That government has the power, depending on who those people are that run the government, the majority party. And in our country, there's just two majority parties. So you know which party I'm talking about, not to offend anyone or step on anyone's toes. But the socialist push in this country, the communist push in this country that has really taken over politics of the one party, if they had their way, they would silence the pulpits. They would silence the Word of God. They would censor the pulpits and censor the Word of God because a lot of what the Bible says is offensive to sinners and especially to certain protected groups of special sinners in our country that have special legal protections. So if, if this is a very real possibility, this is very serious. We need to understand the severity of this, guys. If there was a government in power in Washington, D.C., setting federal law for the nation, and the President, the Congress, and the Senate all agreed to add a certain number of justices to the federal Supreme Court, they would have the power to do this. In other words, if they say, we don't want nine justices, we want 15 justices. As a matter of fact, if you look at American history, and this is certainly not an American uh, history civic lesson, but you can look this up for yourself. There have been times where there were a different number of Supreme Court justices at our highest court of the land. We have nine Supreme Court justices now, and they're pretty well uh, balanced. I mean, we're not happy with some of the decisions that have come down lately as Christians for the, from the Supreme Court, but they've been very close, 5-4 and so forth on the decisions. It's pretty well split right now between uh, the left and the right. But they would have the power to say, we want to add three new Supreme Court justice seats and change it to 12 justices. Then the Senate would get to appoint who was going to be the three new justices. Once they appoint whoever the three new justices are, there are 12 justices. And if there was a 5-4 majority before or a 4-5 minority before, now you have an 8-4 majority or you have a 7-5 majority. And all you need is one more vote in order to establish laws of the land in this nation. So if they did this, they would then have the power to basically rewrite the laws. The legislative branch is the House of Representatives. They would write, rewrite the laws, make amendments to the Constitution as they see fit. They had, would have the power to do that. In the House of Representatives, it's the legislative body. They would then send it to the Senate. The Senate would rubber stamp it because this is all one train here that's left the station. If this happens, the Senate would approve it. It would go to the president's desk. The president would sign it. Now, the states could sue. Let's say a state like Texas, a conservative state like Texas. Let's say that they banished any churches that teach the Bible or read Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that homosexuality is a sin, along with heterosexual sex outside of marriage, along with idolatry and murder and adultery and all kinds of other things in Romans chapter 1 that the Bible says are sin. But they focus primarily on the issue of, of homosexuality, now transgenderism, bisexuality, etc. And so if they said, well, you could read the Bible, but you can't read Romans chapter 1. It's a new law. They make an amendment to the Constitution. Can't read Romans chapter 1. Can't read uh, Galatians chapter 
Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 also say that homosexuality is a sin and uh, do not be deceived. Those who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's offensive. I mean, you know, it's offensive when we're called sinners, but the Bible calls drunkard sinners, idolater sinners, adulterer sinners, fornicator sinners, homosexual sinners. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. Thieves are sinners and so forth. Liars are sinners. Um, but if they, if they made a law like that in a conservative state like Texas, let's say, uh, uh, said, no, we don't agree with that. We're going to let our churches preach the gospel. We're going to let our churches read Romans chapter 1 in Texas. Well, then what would happen is that they would bring a federal case against that church, a federal hate crimes case probably, against that church with the attorney general who would be appointed by the president who's on the train to communism or socialism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it. And uh, And really... It would go to the courts, the local courts for first in Texas, then it would go to the, the Court of Appeals, the District Court of Appeals. There's a whole bunch of appeals, federal appeals courts all over the country. You go to the appeals court, then it would go to the Supreme Court. And now the Supreme Court has a majority of justices who are going to vote along with the people that put them in power. And that's how you lose a nation. And we are really one election away from losing our freedoms in this country. It's never been more serious, guys. Open the Bible with me to Acts chapter 5. This is where we're going to start this evening. And I've entitled this message, Civil Disobedience. We'll call it Civil Disobedience Part 1. We'll do Part 2 on Sunday. The subtitle of the message is give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. Acts chapter 5 and verse 25, we read this. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And verse 33 says, When they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. Now, this was the price that the early church fathers were willing to pray, to pay, rather, in order to be true to Christ, to preach Christ, and to be obedient to Christ when He commanded them uh, to go ye into all the land and preach this gospel, 
the Great Commission. He said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. But he commanded them to go and to preach the gospel. And, and so they were willing to pay the ultimate price. Most of them, actually all of the original disciples, uh, with the exception of, of John the Apostle, were killed for their faith because they wouldn't stop preaching Christ. You can't stop a man that saw another man die brutally on a cross, buried for three days, and then he was raised from the dead and came to them several times in person and said, touch me, see that I'm alive, I'm not a ghost, put your hand uh, in my side, Thomas, put your finger in my hand, see it's me, I'm Jesus, I'm alive, even as I said I would be. Uh, you couldn't shut those guys up. They knew Jesus had conquered death, so why would they fear death? So they were willing to pay the price to preach Christ and obey the gospel. What was the price? Well, the price was arrest. They were arrested many times. The price was prison. They were locked up many times, recorded for us throughout the book of Acts. And they were willing to pay the price of death. Peter was crucified. History tells us he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified. He didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Christ was crucified. So he said, crucify me upside down. Turn the cross upside down and crucify me upside down. That's what church history says. We know he was martyred. We don't know exactly how he was uh, crucified, but it, he was crucified by the Roman government. So Peter died uh, a, 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 a martyr's death. Uh, Paul, we know, died a martyr's death. Paul uh, was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero because he would not stop preaching Christ. Uh, the other ten apostles, besides John the Beloved, John the Beloved was actually, they tried to kill John. The Roman government tried to kill John, I believe under uh, Diocletian uh, in around 90 AD, 85, 90 AD. John was the last apostle that was still alive. And they tried to throw him into a kettle of boiling oil. And miraculously, like the three Hebrew boys in the Old Testament and Daniel in the fiery furnace, miraculously, Fox's Book of Martyrs and church history tells us that they threw him into the pot of boiling oil, but it didn't hurt him. And so they couldn't kill him because his, his ministry wasn't done yet. He still had a book to write. He had to write the book of Revelation, tell us the future. So instead of killing him, because they couldn't kill him, they tried, they locked him up on a prison island, a work island, like a mine on an island, uh, out in the Aegean Sea called the Isle of Patmos, where Jesus appeared to him and Jesus revealed to him the future and he wrote the book of Revelation. And then later he went back after he got out of lockdown and they let him out and he went back to the churches as a very old man and he wrote first, second, and third John. But all of the other original disciples, Judas, of course, was a devil and he killed himself. He hung himself. But all of the other disciples and apostles that Christ handpicked, guess what? They will, were all killed for their faith. They were all willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they did die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the blood of the saints became the seed of the gospel in the early church. And the more of the Christians that Rome actually killed, the faster the church exploded. Like a wildfire that you're trying to stamp on, the more you stamp on it, it just jumps and it spreads. And so in the end, Rome didn't conquer Christianity. Christianity actually conquered Rome in 320-something A.D. with uh, Constantine, the first Roman emperor who 
became a Christian and who declared that Rome was now a Christian nation. So uh, they couldn't kill Christianity. They killed the Christians, but they couldn't kill Christianity. Just like they killed Jesus, but they couldn't stop the gospel because he came back from the dead. Now, the prior chapter in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, we read this. Now, when they had seen the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Many of us Calvary pastors are uneducated and untrained men, so thank God for that, that God uses uneducated and untrained men still. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This was the lame, lame man that was begging uh, alms at the temple gate that Peter said, rise up and walk. And he uh, stood up and, and, and he walked and he leapt and jumped around uh, for joy because Jesus healed him. He said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this paralyzed man jumped up and, and walked around. What could they say? It was a miracle right before their eyes. The people were amazed. They were all giving glory to God. But the religious establishment, which was the local government here, the religious leaders had a local government in Jerusalem. It was run by the corrupt priests. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that plotted to kill Jesus, that felt threatened by Jesus. They were the rulers of that, of that area, the religious leaders of that area in Jerusalem. And, uh, and they tried to stop the early church from even being planted. They tried to uh, basically wipe it out before it got established. And yet... Uh, they couldn't stop it because they were not willing to compromise. They were not willing to obey laws that contradicted the dictates of their conscience before God. So you couldn't stop them. You could kill them, but you couldn't stop them. You could imprison them, but you couldn't stop them. You could torture them, but you couldn't stop them. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, and I'm going to be flipping through a few scriptures here, so you may want to write, jot these down and look them up later. But Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul the Apostle said this. He said, Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
Let God be true and every man a liar. So if man tells us to do something that contradicts what God tells us to do, what is our charge? Our charge is this. Let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter if the man is the king, if the man is the high priest, or if the man is the governor of the state of California. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's authority is over all authority. His authority is over the government. His authority is over the justice system. His authority is over all authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's all authority. He's over all authorities. Let God be true and every man a liar. And some will tell us, and they have told us, because they know what we're doing here, we're rebelling. By preaching this sermon, we're breaking the law here. And some have told us, be careful. There aren't a lot of churches opening up. Most churches are obeying the government. And you should really think about what you're doing because you don't want to tick off the government, especially not in California. And they'll tell us, you know, you're breaking the law by meeting in person. And don't you know that what you're doing is illegal? And, it, it, you know, God wouldn't want you to do this because God would want you to obey the government. And what they often quote is they quote Romans chapter 13, which I'll read to you. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And I've had pastors read this scripture to me and say we're commanded right here to obey the government. Again, this is when a government is not requiring you to disobey God. If a government is insisting, demanding, mandating, ordering, you to disobey God, you don't have to follow that government and obey that government. Our whole country was founded on this, by the way. Our whole nation was founded on this principle. The whole church was founded on this principle. People say, well, you know, we, we need to be good. Indeed, we do need to be good citizens. We need to be above reproach. We certainly do. But if what we're doing here, Paul says, uh, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Are we doing evil works here by meeting? Is this evil to meet together? Do you feel you're doing something evil here today? I don't. I feel we're following the command of Jesus Christ to preach the Word, preach the Gospel, proclaim the Gospel message while there's still time. To not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As, as the manner of some is, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.25. That's a command. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves 
together. If we're all sitting at home watching a live stream, number one, they could push a button and turn us off if they wanted to because the government controls the internet too, by the way. They certainly have tremendous power over the internet to influence what's on the internet. So if we're all sitting at home and I'm preaching to a camera, which we did that for eight weeks when the coronavirus first hit, we were following orders. We, we, you know, we believed that, that it was the right thing to do at that time and we did it. Uh, but number one, they could shut you off if they wanted to. Number two, we really weren't gathering together as a body. This is the body of Christ. You are members. I'm a member. Christ is the head. We're the body. And as such, the body needs to be together for it to have a body. You can't have one finger over here, another finger over there, another you know foot over here, another foot over there. Everybody's sitting at home watching on their TV, looking at Facebook, phone calls coming in, you know, running to grab a cup of coffee and you know, forgetting where they were. And the, you know, there's a lot of distractions sitting at home watching a sermon online. A lot of distractions. Tough for a lot of people to actually. Uh, stay focused on the on the message that they're watching. If there's no other choice, fine. But if there is a choice, we we should obey God rather than man. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together is a command in the New Testament to the church. If we were to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we would be disobeying God and obeying man. Where the Bible says it's better to obey God rather than obey man. At the time Paul wrote Romans 13, that people, pastors, that I respect, will, will throw in our face for what we're doing here today. And, and by the way, there are thousands of churches that are rebelling right now in California. I talked to, well, texted with Shannon Grove, Senator Shannon Grove, this afternoon. And, uh, uh, and, I'll, and I'll share, at the end of the sermon, I'll share with you what she sent to me. Uh, but she encouraged me. There are thousands and thousands of other pastors in California who are rebelling against the governor's orders. We are not alone. And even if we were alone, we're not alone because God is on our side. And I firmly believe that. This is the time the church should be meeting more than any time in our history. We have an economic collapse, potentially. We have a pandemic. We have a, you know, one of the worst political, uh, dirtiest political campaigns in our history taking place, a huge election coming up in November that could determine the future of our country and the future existence of our constitutional republic, our nation itself. The churches need to be meeting today. We need to be gathering together. We need to be praying together. We need to be worshiping the Lord together. We're commanded also throughout the book of Psalms to worship the Lord together in the congregation, in the house of the Lord. And so this is the time the church ought to be meeting. This is not the time to be playing church, guys. This is not the time to be playing church at home. Now, if you're sick and you can't be out and you have a compromised immune system and you're over 65 or 70 and you're years old and you're worried about the coronavirus, by all means, you don't have to be here. We're not requiring anyone to be here. Look around. You're just invited. We're just not going to shut the doors on you. We're not going to lock you out. We're not demanding anyone be here. We're not requiring anyone to be here. We're not uh, speaking ill of anyone that's not here. That's not what we're doing. We're just not going to shut the, the doors of the church. But at the time that Romans 13 was written, that everybody will bring up as why we should obey the governor's orders and not rebel, at the time that it was written, Christianity and the practice of Christianity 
was becoming illegal in the Roman Empire. Not only was it becoming illegal in the Roman Empire, it was by all uh, uh, reason, it was illegal at this time. E- even by inference, because the Romans did not put up with any other gods that were going to challenge Caesar. And so actually, they they came up with a law. I don't remember which emperor it was. There were so many Caligula and all these perverted, disgusting Nero was insane. Uh, uh, Diocletian and all of these uh, emperors were so wicked of Rome, so evil, and um, and and so they they basically made a law that you had to once a year come to a temple and you had to worship the emperor. He was the deity above all the. De- Remember the Roman pantheon; they had tons of gods in Rome, Venus and Mars and all these gods uh, in Rome. Then they had the Greek gods, Jupiter and. Diana and all these other gods, the, the Greek pantheon. Everybody was worshiping all kinds of gods at that time. So you would think it wouldn't be a problem to add another god to the, to the pantheon. Let's add, you know, Jesus Christ among all these other gods. But, but Jesus always, <laughs> he always causes uh, problems wherever he goes, you know, because he's the true God and the other gods don't like him. And so all the other gods could be worshiped. They tolerated the, the religion of Christianity and allowed the Christians to, to worship. The Jews didn't in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, but, um, but they said, you can worship Jesus, but once a year you have to swear fealty and devotion to the greatest of all the gods, which is the emperor, the Caesar of Rome, was looked at as a god, starting with Julius Caesar, the first Caesar. They worshiped him as God and they, and they, and they used the divine authority to rule over the people. Basically, that if you challenge the Caesar or the emperor, you're challenging God. And so they required the Christians once a year to say, and everyone really, but they were, they targeted the Christians with this law to say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And any Christian in good conscience can't say Caesar is Lord. Caesar's just a man. No, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's when the persecution really came against the church. Not only did they lock the Christians up, this isn't long after Christ was raised from the dead, within the the, the next 30, 40, 50 years of church history, the first century. Not only did they lock the Christians up, they, they started to torture the Christians. They burned the Christians on poles. Nero was such a madman, he impaled the Christians, Josephus tells us, and other historians of the Roman time, first century A.D., they impaled the Christians on stakes up through their body on a stake and put them up and set them in the air. And as they were dying from being impaled by a stake, he poured, had his soldiers pour oil on them and lit them on fire throughout his gardens, Nero's gardens. And he would ride around, he was totally insane, he would ride around naked in his chariots, and he would cry out, you are the light of the world, you are the light of the world, as the Christians burned and screamed in agony, burned to death. They then decided to begin to make sport out of the Christians and to feed the Christians to the lions in the Colosseum. Typically, they killed slaves in the Colosseum. The gladiators fought in the, in the Colosseum, fought to the death, and it was the bread and circuses trying to keep the people occupied and 
not thinking about the uh, graft and the corruption in the Roman Senate and the corruption and the perversion of the Roman emperors. I mean, uh, Rome went, went quickly uh, downhill after the first century, actually really after Julius Caesar. But um, so much uh, uh, just perversion and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, terrible things that they did. Uh, to children and, and so forth. And so they begin to make sport out of the Christians and feed the Christians to the lions and the tigers for sport, for the throngs of people that would come to watch the circuses. That's what it was called. It was called the circus, the Roman Colosseum. This is history. And uh, the people hated the Christians. They enjoyed seeing the Christians get ripped apart by lions. And, and if you would deny Christ, they would let you go. All you had to do was say Caesar is Lord. All you had to do was deny that Jesus is Lord and they would set you free. And they would even give you that chance as they were uh, bringing you out into the Colosseum and opening up the, the bars and the gates to put you out there with the gladiators and the lions. And if the lions wouldn't eat you, a lot of times what they would do is they would cover the people with blood of animals with sheep's blood and goat's blood. They would even dress them with, with goat skins and sheep skins over them to get the lions to attack them. And if the lions still wouldn't attack them, the gladiators would just go and execute the Christians. Christians were martyred by the millions in the first 300 years of church history. By the millions they were killed. Certainly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands at least were martyred because they would not deny Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul, who tells us to obey the government, was actually locked up in prison and wrote several books from prison for disobeying the government. So when people say, well, Paul says, you know, Romans 13, obey the government. Yeah, well, Paul disobeyed the government. That's why he wrote 2 Timothy from prison. He wrote Philemon from prison. He wrote Colossians from prison. He wrote Philippians from prison. These were all his prison epistles. Why was he in prison? Because he would not deny Christ. He wouldn't stop preaching Jesus Christ. No matter what they said or what they did, they locked him up. He'd just write letters that ended up becoming half of our New Testament Bible. So, at some point, we have to be willing to stand. And it's been said, if you're not willing to stand for something, you will fall. You will fall for anything. So it's been illegal to preach Christ for a long time, since the very beginning. It's been illegal to meet and assemble for many, many years, centuries, thousands of years, actually, at times. It's still illegal in uh, Russia. If you're not registered with the Russian government, you can't start a church in Russia. If you're not registered with the Chinese government, you can't even have a Bible in China. China edits the Bibles, even the Bibles that they have in their communist-controlled church where the Communist Party writes the sermons and all the pastors in the Communist Church in China have to read the same message all over China. It's always this, it's the same message written by the Communist Party leaders. Um, you're not allowed to say that, that Jesus is king. As a matter of fact, they threw out the whole book of Revelation because they had a problem with the fact that the Revelation says that Jesus is the king of the earth and he's going to come back and he's going to take dominion of planet earth at the end of time. So they just get rid of the whole book of Revelation. So they edit the Bible down to what they wanted to say. They edit the word of God in China today. It's illegal to be a Christian. There's 300 million Christians underground. They get sent to camps. They get tortured. Re-education camps. Concentration camps. They disappear and they never, they're never heard from again. 
these Christians in China. In Iran, it's illegal to own a Bible. It's illegal to be a Christian. In North Korea, who knows if there's any Christians in North Korea? There's nobody that really ever gets out of North Korea. So uh, I'm sure there are some Christians there, but it's illegal. So, you know, this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. And dictators always want to get rid of Christianity when they take over a country. You know why? Because Christianity is a threat to their power. Because the people who are Christians are loyal to God above them. And they cannot have that. They need total obedience. Paul and Silas, it's recorded, were arrested for preaching the Gospel and they were singing songs in prison. Peter and John were arrested and beaten and released for preaching Christ. And they were celebrating the fact, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name's Christ's name's sake. John the Apostle, I mentioned, boiled in oil, banished to the prison isle of Patmos because he was preaching Christ. Our founding fathers, by the way, the main reason that our country was founded was so that we'd have religious liberties. In Europe, everybody was either part of the Roman church and the Pope was the head of the Roman church or they were part of uh, one of the state churches in Europe, whether it was the, the, the English church, the Church of England, or uh, the German church, and they had all of these churches where the kings were the head of the church. To this day, the queen is still officially the head of the church in England. She's the head of the Anglican church. The king is the head of the church in England. It's how it's been for 500 years, the king or the queen. And so our founding fathers, the Pilgrims and the Quakers, came over here because they didn't want to have a man at the head, the Pope, the King, the Queen, whoever it was. They want Jesus to be the head of the church, not a man to be the head of the church or a woman. And so they came here so that they could worship God freely. Patrick Henry, on March 23rd, 1775, in St. John's Church, an illegal sermon by the British government who was the king over America, who was, this is part of the British Empire here before we rebelled. Illegal. He said, give me liberty or give me death. March 23rd, 1775, St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. That was an illegal thing for him to say, by the way, because they were planning to rebel against the king and the British said, hey, the king is the head of the church. You can't preach against the king. You can't rebel against the king. Romans 13 says you have to obey the king. He said, no. Give me liberty or give me death. Benjamin Franklin, at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, said this, we must all hang together or we shall all hang separately talking about the 13 colonies. They were all fighting and fighting about rebelling against the king. Some wanted to, some didn't. And, and he, basically, he basically said, guys, we're all going to have to stick together. We're going to have to hang together. And if we don't hang together now, we're certainly all going to hang separately later. Church, if we don't all hang together now, we will certainly all be hung separately later. If a totalitarian government takes over our country, there's no doubt they will come after the churches. They'll come after the pastors and they'll come after the Christians. That's what the communists do. That's what the Marxists do. That's what the fascists do because we are a threat to their power because our allegiance is to God and not to them. Many fought and died 
to procure our freedoms that we enjoy now, 250 years later, after they fought for our freedom in the Revolutionary War. They fought and died. They gave their blood and their lives and their treasure to give us the freedoms that we now enjoy. And one of those freedoms is the freedom that we have to assemble together and worship our God without government interference. As a matter of fact, let me just read to you the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. By the way, the United States Constitution is supposed to be the highest law of the land. No county laws, city laws, or state laws, or regional laws are supposed to go against the federal constitution. The founding fathers wrote this. These are our founding documents ensuring our guarantees in this country. The Constitution of the United States of America, written in 1789, the First Amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So, you, you know, we weren't going to be a, a Roman Catholic nation like Spain or, or Rome or Portugal in Europe. Um, we weren't going to be a, 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 a king or a monarchy run uh, church here or religion in America. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we're not going to have a national religion here with a national religious head like the Pope or the king or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I'll read it again. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is what we're doing here today. This is called the free exercise of religion, which is guaranteed by our Constitution. It goes on to say, or abridging the freedom of speech. This is the freedom of speech that I am speaking to you right now. This is the freedom of speech. We have the freedom to assemble for religious purposes or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. That's what we're doing. We're assembling peaceably here and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And we may be in court, and we may be petitioning the government for a redress of grievances if we get arrested for doing this. But I, I think we're on pretty solid ground, uh, you know, constitutionally and legally and so forth. Because uh, if the Congress can't make a, a law uh, establishing uh, a new religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or the free speech that goes along, well, all this is tied in, by the way, to religious speech, uh, and uh, freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly. How could the governor make a law that's not even passed by the Senate? It's not passed by the assembly. It's an executive order that he just mandates. He dictates. He requires that churches cannot meet. Not even if we all wore face masks, we're not allowed to meet. <laughs> we can't sing. By the way, it's still against the law to sing in churches in California. It's against the law to sing in churches in California. So we just, we just broke the law earlier when we had worship. So we believe that, that uh, it's better to obey God rather than to obey man. And actually, our Bible is filled with stories of courageous heroes and heroines who were willing to suffer for their faith and many to die for their faith in the God of the Bible. Many preferred death rather than compromise or capitulation to a secular 
government. I want to look at a couple of examples here and uh, we'll see how far we can get this evening. In Daniel chapter 3, let me read this story to you. One of the great stories that we tell our children to encourage them to trust the Lord. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its width was 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image or the idol or the statue which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this was a legal decree. It was commanded by the king. You couldn't disobey the king at this time. You had to obey him uh, under pain of death. If you disobeyed him, you were going to be burned in a fiery furnace. And most people just agreed. They just went along with it. Didn't want to be burned in a fiery furnace. So they went and they stood before uh, uh, this and worshipped this golden image which represented their king, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Verse 8 says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, horn flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all other kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? 
Who do you guys think you are disobeying me? The king is saying, come on, guys. You know, there were young men. They were Jews brought there from uh, Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered Judah and Judea and carried away the captives into Babylon. They were young men, uh, Jewish young men. They served in his court uh, and uh, they were. um, He had set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon, so they were they, they were emissaries of his or, or they were officials of his court they they had a prominent position so them disobeying the king made a made a scene they're like hey these guys that you have in charge of these parts of your government they're disobeying you king nebuchadnezzar and he was enraged and he called them in and 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 asked them you know are you are you gonna bow down to, to my image and there's no god he says what god is there that's going to deliver you from my hands i mean what uh, what hope do you have i'm the most powerful king in the world and he was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O king. In other words, we have a God that's greater than you, Nebuchadnezzar. And if He wants to uh, deliver us from your fiery furnace, He's big enough to do that. He's bigger than you. And he says, they continue in verse 18, but if not, if God doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And no one defied Nebuchadnezzar. No one defied Nebuchadnezzar. He was a scary guy, powerful, powerful ruler and military general. Nobody opposed him. He never lost a battle, never lost a war. He brought uh, Babylon to the greatest glory. He uh, uh, built the Babylonian walls, which were 300 feet high around the whole city of Babylon, historians tell us. 300 feet high and somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 feet wide. Could ride five chariots with horses abreast on top of the walls of Babylon. He built the hanging gardens for one of his wives, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, He was a powerful, powerful king. Nobody dared challenge him. And these three Hebrew young men were willing to tell him, you know, we're not going to compromise, king. We're not going to serve your gods and we're not going to worship your image. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever seen people whose faces, expressions change when, when you won't compromise and you won't give them what they want? And the mask comes off. They give you the evil face. His face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans. In other words, they had all their clothes on and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was exceedingly hot. The flame of fire of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The, the guards who, who he, the men of valor, the mighty men from his army who he had throw these guys into the fiery furnace, they were killed by the heat. Who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace 
furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loosed, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of, of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw that these men, on whose bodies the fire had no power, the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. They were willing to die. They were not willing to compromise. They were willing to die a torturous, terrible death, be burning, being burned alive. Uh, and yet the fire had no power over them. Why? Because God was there with them in the fire. Who was the fourth one that was like the Son of Man? No doubt this is a Christophany, a theophany. Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament to come and to put like a, I can almost imagine like a bubble around them of protection that the fire couldn't touch them. The smoke couldn't touch them. The heat couldn't touch them. They didn't even have the smell of, of smoke on their clothes because Jesus was there with them in the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel or his messenger and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded up their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made in ash heap because there is no other God who could deliver like this. Nebuchadnezzar was impressed by their God. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So these guys were willing to be the only three out of a whole nation who would not capitulate and acquiesce to this king when it came to their faith. They served him faithfully, no doubt. All the other times, they were probably his most loyal servants. They were probably the most faithful servants that Nebuchadnezzar had in his whole kingdom. And yet they would not compromise on their issue of their faith or their worship of only the one true God. And as a result, God saved them. God protected them. We all know their names and we talk about their story thousands of years later. And there was a great revival that took place as a result of how God delivered them. And even the king said that there's no greater God anywhere in the world than these guys' God, the God of Abraham. Uh, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar blessed God and he commanded everyone that they should only worship in his kingdom now Yahweh or Jehovah. They should worship nor uh, serve uh, any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language who speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, uh, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut to pieces. So uh, they, they, you know, you couldn't stop God. You couldn't stop God. He wanted to save these guys and he saved them. Now, there's another 
story in Daniel that many of you are familiar with, where Daniel was actually taken and he was thrown into the lion's den because he would not obey the order of the new government under the Medes and the Persians who conquered the Babylonians. And uh, Daniel was a high-profile ambassador or emissary in the court of the king. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, says it pleased Darius, this is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so the king would uh, suffer no loss. So Daniel was one of the top three men in the whole kingdom there in the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors, the other governors and the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. The spirit of God was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. The king was even thinking about making him over the three. He was one of three that ruled over everyone under the king. And he was going to make uh, basically make Daniel the number two guy under himself, and Daniel would even be over the other governors. <clears throat> Verse 4, So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. In other words, they examined him and they, and they found that he was above reproach. There was no, nothing, he wasn't breaking any laws. He wasn't corrupt. He wasn't taking bribes. He wasn't sleeping around. He, he, you know, he was a loyal subject to the king and he was a good man. He was an honorable man. He, had, he was a man of integrity. And the men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So here you go again. They know that he would not compromise his faith. So they said, if we're going to get this guy and remove him because he's a threat to our power, it's got to be in relation to to his faith, the worship of the law of his God. Verse 6, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said, King Darius, live forever. And all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, satraps, counselors, the advisors, have counseled together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And they thought they had Daniel right where they wanted him. Because in essence, he was not going to be allowed to pray to his God, make petitions to his God for 30 days. The only one that he would be allowed to pray to is the king, King Darius. And they knew... They've got him. And they knew that in the law of the Medes and the Persians, the law could not be changed. Once it was uh, in effect by the, by the king, nobody could change it. Even the king couldn't change it. You learn about that in uh, the story of Queen Esther, where Asher Harris could not change the laws. He could only gave the right for the Jews to defend themselves because he could not revoke a law that even he himself uh, had made, King Asher Harris, in the book of Esther. So King Darius signed the decree... Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, verse 10, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon. So he faces toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. 
Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying. Of course they, they did, and Daniel knew they would. And making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter, cannot be changed. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. In other words, he's breaking the law by worshiping his God. You made a law. Can't pray to anyone except for Nebuchadnezzar for 30 days. He's breaking the law that you wrote. And you can't change the law. He knew it. When the king heard these words, he was greatly displeased. He loved Daniel. He liked Daniel. He was the most trusted advisor. He was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that reminding him that no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed. He was They trapped him, in other words. There was no way for him to revoke this order. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God whom you serve continually, He will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him and his sleep went from him. He was up all night troubled about Daniel in the lion's den. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the the den of lions. And when he had Uh, When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. Remember the angel of the Lord was there in the fiery furnace? He says, my God sent his angel. Uh, uh, Again, likely... uh, a theophany of Jesus Christ, and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And, and you, you know the rest of the story. There was a, actually a, a, a likely a great revival of the faith in Babylon or uh, Babylon under the Medes and the Persians at this time because then Darius made a decree that everybody would tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He's the living God uh, his, uh, and steadfast uh, forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. That's verse 26. Verse 27, he rescues and delivers and he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. And who has delivered Daniel, uh, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so there was uh, a great revival as a result in Babylon under the Medes and the Persians from the very top of the government because Daniel was willing to stand upon his convictions and not compromise. 
The government was not allowed to make a law that forbid him from worshiping his God, from praying to his God. And he was willing to be eaten by lions. Just like many in the early church in the Colosseums who actually were eaten by lions and killed by lions. By the hundreds of thousands in the, Colos- in the Colosseums. And uh, they crucified them in, in, in Roman times. They burned them alive. They fed them to the lions. They tried to do whatever they could. They put them in prison in Rome. They, they stripped them of all their property rights. They took away uh, their families from them. And, and yet they couldn't break these Christians. Just like you couldn't break Daniel. You couldn't break Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, uh, Queen Esther, she went into the king, even though it was illegal, against the law. And she says, if I perish, I perish. She knew she had to go to the king and plead with him to save the Jews from the annihilation of evil Haman, who was trying to obliterate and annihilate the Jews because of his jealousy of the Jews, specifically of uh, Esther's cousin Mordecai. And so, you know, it, it, it takes people of courage it takes people who are going to be willing to even break the laws of man if, if the laws of man are breaking the laws of God. And let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. We're not saying that every Christian in every church needs to meet publicly inside of an enclosed building in California, but neither should you, other churches, say that we should not be obedient to the dictates of our own conscience for us to meet here tonight illegally against the order of the governor. In Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to have to uh, pick up on Sunday morning where I'm leaving off here, but in Revelation chapter 12, we read this about the time that's yet future, and we're very close to uh, the time of the end, the end times, we read this in Revelation 12:7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So Michael was a good angel, a loyal angel, Michael the archangel. He had a bunch of angels with him. They were fighting the dragon. The dragon is identified as the devil or Satan or Lucifer. And the dragon and his angels, the one-third of the angels that rebelled against God uh, with uh, the dragon... Satan. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon, the devil, was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. These are the demons that fell the one-third of the angels that rebelled, the demons, were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. And that is how we stand against oppression. That is how we stand against the attacks of the devil. When the devil uses people, when the devil uses governments or governors or kings or presidents or rulers, 
Because we know we battle not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle, guys. This is a battle not against flesh and blood. The devil is behind trying to shut the churches down. It's the enemy that's behind this. And they overcame him. The tribulation saints, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They were covered in the blood of the Lamb, washed in the blood. By the word of their testimony, they had a testimony that they were actually uh, not just hearers of the word, but they were doers also. They built their life upon the rock of the word of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word of their testimony, they had a good testimony of serving God and that they did not lo- love their lives even to the death. And so we kind of we kind of end where we started. That if if you're not scared to die, then what are you scared of? And we shouldn't be scared to die because our days are in their number. They're in God's hands. He knows how many breaths we have in our lungs. He knows how many heartbeats we have in our chest. He knows exactly when we're going to die. And so we don't fear death and we don't fear what comes after death because death for the believer is actually graduation to real life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul the Apostle said. And so we don't have to fear, but we have to we have to come to the place where we realize it's all about Jesus. Commanding the people to look the other way while they were killing the Jews in Germany in the 1940s at the Holocaust. Corey Tim Boom, a Christian woman and her family, obeyed God rather than Hitler and the Nazi party. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran priest, a good man, a godly man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer rebelled against Hitler because Hitler took all the crosses down and put swastikas up on all the churches throughout Germany and made Hitler above Jesus Christ in the churches and pretty much wrote the sermons. The propaganda machine of the Nazis wrote the sermons that were preached from the pulpits to get the Christians to support the Nazi party and their regime as they were seeking to conquer the world for the Third Reich. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer rebelled, and he conspired to have Hitler killed, and he was found out. He's a Lutheran priest. And they killed him. They hung him. He was willing to die for his faith rather than to remain quiet and to continue with a wicked ruler and the orders that were coming down from this wicked government. Jesus actually, guys, broke the temple laws, the Jewish temple laws, by overturning the money changers' tables. That was a crime against the temple and against the laws of the temple. And he broke those laws because it's better to obey God rather than obey man. Those laws were wrong that they were forcing the people to uh, uh, buy their animals uh, there at the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And Jesus overturned the money changers' tables. Jesus broke their law by healing on the Sabbath day. Broke the laws of the religious Jews that were running the temple at that time. He was always healing people on the Sabbath day to show them that the Sabbath day uh, uh, was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath, and it's good to do good on the Sabbath. Is it okay to pull a donkey out of a ditch on the Sabbath, he asked them? Then how come it's not okay for me to heal this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day? So he purposefully poked at them and broke their laws because their laws were wrong. Their laws were ungodly. And then ultimately, Jesus was crucified because he didn't deny the fact that he was the king. And nobody could say they, they were the king except for Caesar in Rome. And you remember Pontius Pilate asked him, said, are you a king? He says, yeah, pretty much you've said it. My kingdom's not of this world, but I am a king. 
And uh, even Pilate tried to, to, to let him go, but he, he didn't have the courage and strength to set up, stand up to the crowds. And, and, uh, and he gave him over to the crowds. And the Romans crucified him, not the Jews. The Romans crucified him. Um, but Jesus broke the laws of the Roman Empire by declaring that he was a king and he was a greater king uh, even than Caesar. He never denied that because it was the truth. So we are in very, very, very good company tonight here, guys, as we are breaking the laws to obey the higher law, which is the law of God. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.